as a Halloween treat, a study of Strange is excited to share this special, additional episode, an interview with one of the most influential horror filmmakers of my lifetime, Tom Holland. Tom is known for writing films like Psycho 2 and Cloak and Dagger, and writing and directing classics like Child's Play, Thinner, and Fright Night, and so many more. Few filmmakers are fortunate to be part of major franchises, and Tom is part of at least three. Whether you want to watch Norman Bates, something adapted from Stephen King, or Chucky the Dog go on a murderous rampage, there's something from Tom Holland for everyone at Halloween. And we're going to jump right into the interview, talk to Tom, and also hear about his brand new book, Fright Night Origins. This is A Study of Strange. Thank you so much for being on the show. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. It's a pleasure to be here, Michael. Thank you. It is the holiday Halloween season. Yes, yes. We're just at the just at the doorway, aren't we? We are, we are. So I've been talking to a lot of people, especially filmmakers, just because that's who I know about scary stories and things like that. And I kind of wanted to start with you about your background and how you got started in the horror genre, because... You started as an actor, correct? You studied the actor's studio. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so was horror always an interest or, or scary stories or macabre stories, or did you kind of fall into it because of work? Well, a combination. Growing up, my favorites were horror movies and sci-fi movies, which were hard to find when I was growing up. And those that I did find were sort of uniformly terrible. Uh, <laughs> I grew up with uh, Hammer mm-hmm. and with AIP, mm-hmm. which were Hammer knockoffs from America. Yeah. And I, I dearly loved them, but my life changed in 1960 or 61 when I saw Psycho mm-hmm. because that changed horror films. For those of you who were too young to know, the, the first slasher film, the invention of the genre was Alfred Hitchcock with Psycho, which has to be still the scariest film I ever saw. I think I was like 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. And I literally watched it, cower, sunk down in my seat, cowering between my splayed fingers, which were held in front of my face. And I don't, I don't know if I really understood montage before mm-hmm. Psycho or cutting. And when I look, because if you, if you grew up on Hammer or AIP, it was, they, they, they photographed the sets. They were deeply saturated, and it was very, very traditional cutting. Would start with a wide shot, mm-hmm. so you could see this wonderful house, a wonderful set they were shooting in, mm-hmm. and then they'd go in for closer coverage. But I don't know if they even ever did an insert. Yeah, it was like a wide shot, a closer, a closer two <laughs> shot. Maybe you get an over the get a couple of over the shoulders, but that was it. Hardly ever a single. And then along came Psycho, and along came the shower scene, and oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. And then right after, the, the next film I think I saw after that, that that let me understand the plasticity of film was uh, Godard's uh, Breathless. Yeah. I'd yeah. never seen a jump cut before yeah. that. Remember, before, before these films that we're talking about that came in, Psycho 61, late 60s, it started to change. But before that, if you caught a flare in the lens when you were shooting a movie, it was a mistake, yep. and you took it out. And this was just in a period, late 60s, early 70s, they were crazy for zooming. 
they would zoom in. They wouldn't cut in. They'd zoom in and they'd zoom out like a winner. Uh, you know, so, but I grew up with a, with an affection for horror before there was a horror genre mm -hmm. and certainly before there was a horror community. I want to, I do want to talk about Psycho a bit, so I'm glad you brought that up because I saw Psycho, the original one. I must have been nine. I was oh, very God. young. Oh, that's really and, young. But I was fascinated. That's like permanent with, damage. Oh, absolutely. Age. Maybe that's what's wrong with me. But I, I was fascinated with it. Absolutely fascinated with the movie because I'd never seen anything like it before. And because of that, when I was probably 12, 13, I started going to the video store uh -huh. and I started watching all the sequels. So I'd love to ask you how you got involved and what your goals were with that and really what, what you brought to the table. It was an Australian director named Richard Franklin, who was no longer with us, <coughs> but who became very influential in my career. Uh, it was a cable movie mm -hmm. for, for Oak Communication. This is 1982. The, uh, and Universal didn't think anybody would be interested. This was a beat before sequels really started to take mm -hmm. off. And... Uh, they were going to release it as a as a, as a as a as a cable movie, and Richard and I talked, and we both desperately wanted to get a feature film, and the only way to do that was to get Tony Perkins to say he would come back of and course. play Norman Bates. Yeah, and Tony had a very ambivalent relationship with Norman Bates, having feeling that it had it had. Uh, wrecked his career yeah, in a lot of ways. Stuff, yeah. He'd been a young lead, a mm -hmm. young romantic lead. And I don't know why he took Psycho, but he did. I should have asked him. The uh, And it was such a, an enormous sleeper hit. And all of a sudden, people said, oh my gosh, that's Tony Perkins. All the girls were in love with me. He's a serial murderer. It was a brilliant performance that, 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 that Tony gave. And then he couldn't get any more young romantic leads. They kept pushing him into, you know, horror movies. And so he went to Europe and worked. And mm -hmm. he worked in very intellectual pieces, actually. Probably hurt his career more. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I said to Richard Franklin, the director of Psycho 2, if we want to get Tony and have a shot at a feature film, I've got to write a part that is actor's bait. Yeah. That is so strong and delicious and has a character arc that will, that he'll say, I, I have to play this so I can, so I can act this. The acting role is so challenging. And so what I did is I started out Psycho 2 with Tony's release, with Norman's release from the mental institution after 22 years. Mm -hmm. And he's taken back to the Psycho House slash motel by the psychiatrist, Robert Loja, and everything seems steady. And Tony is desperately trying to hold on to his sanity. And of course, the torture begins the minute the psychiatrist leaves the house and says, have a, you know, have a good, enjoy yourself. You're helping run the hotel, make some money. Mm -hmm. So Tony has a character arc of somebody who's sane, who's desperately trying to stay sane, who's driven stark raving mad by the end of the movie. And in 1982, Psycho 2 was the biggest grossing movie in North America that summer after the first release of the first Star Wars sequel. Mm -hmm. And what happened was Universal, who had no faith in the movie, we did it for nothing. We did it for less than $5 million. 
and shot it like uh, like Hitchcock shot the original Psycho, which is to say with the TV crew, we only left the, the Universal block for one shot in the graveyard, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, they Universal released the news, press release worldwide, that Norman Bates was coming back, that, that, that Anthony Perkins was coming back to play Norman Bates. And the entire world went crazy. Yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden, Universal said, oh my goodness, this does have feature potential. Yeah. And they took a little cable movie, put some promo behind it, and released it in the summer and blew everybody away. I'm, I'm prejudiced, yeah. but it is a terrific movie. Mm-hmm. Richard Franklin nailed it as yeah. a director. And we worked really closely when I was writing it. And I was writing, I we looked at, we, we viewed every Hitchcock movie and I made a list of all the visual set pieces, which is to say those moments in the movie where the story moved forward without dialogue, which is Hitchcock. It's called moving pictures, <laughs> not talking pictures. That's Mr. Hitchcock. Uh, indeed. So how did you get asked to write that? I had done a, uh, uh, I had my first movie produced, The Beast Within. And I thought, ah, my my future career will finally start to move. And what happened was United Artists went bankrupt because of the Michael Cimino film, Heaven's Dance. And Beast Within, which is the last movie the United Artists released before it went bankrupt because of of Cimino, released (laughs) Beast Within. It was a success. It made money and nobody knew (laughs) because all the town could write about with the financial troubles of right, United Artists right, exactly. and Heaven's Gate. And, you know, I, I was, and so there I saw, so I, after getting my first film produced, I sat for almost a year out of work. Yeah. Richard got Psycho 2 and every writer, at least on the, on the Universal list, turned him down. Nobody wanted, no writer wanted to touch Psycho 2 because everybody knew going in it was critical death. Yeah. I mean, the critics were just going to savage you for having the temerity uh, to make a sequel to the greatest, to a classic movie. Yeah, yeah. And I was desperate enough for a job that I thought, well, I'm going to take a crack at it and see if I can turn this into a success. Yeah, and that's kind of my next question would be, did you feel the pressure of having to do a sequel to a Hitchcock movie? Oh, gosh, yes. Yes, Like I I could not imagine that. Like I could not imagine that. It was the last meeting of all those who were still with us who had actually worked with Alfred Hitchcock. Wow. The the, uh, number of members of the crew the script supervisor, who was a man, had worked with Hitchcock. Uh, the, uh, the, 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 the an AD to the cinematographer, who had a wonderful cinematographer on it. Uh, was Dean Kundi? Dean Kundi. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's one darkness. of my favorites. Yeah. Well, he was coming off of a disastrous film called The Thing. Oh yeah. By John Carpenter, which nobody remembers but open to savage reviews. Terrible reviews, and it's and one of my no favorites. business. <laughs> so Dean Cundy was without a job. Yeah. And I was without a job. But Psycho 2 was a bunch of people who loved Alfred Hitchcock coming together for one reason or another, quite often because they were in duress in their careers and wow. making what turned out to be a huge financial success. Yeah. Well, well we're all thankful for it. <laughs> well, it, it was such a success that it gave Tony the chance to direct Psycho 3. 
Yeah. Because Tony said, I ain't doing it yeah. unless I direct it. It was a huge change. And I think it was Psycho 2, in a way, was the beginning of Hollywood starting to realize how much money there was in the horror yes. genre. Yeah, yeah. It, it could be. And so that, I would imagine, even though you were already having some success, but like you said, you were out of work for about a year before that, but was Psycho 2 kind of the door opening to to take more of a step into the horror world as a as a writer and director? Psycho that... 2 changed my career yeah. and my life. All of a sudden, I, I, had, I was going from being a working but struggling screenwriter to being a very hot screenwriter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm which does nothing but increase the anxiety. Of course. But uh, but it was a wonderful experience all the way. You worked with Richard uh, multiple times, I did times, Cloak right? and Dagger. Cloak and Dagger, that's Richard. right. Yeah. And then I wrote uh, Scream for Help, yeah. which Richard was supposed to do. And then Richard dumped on it and went off to make a film that turned out to be not successful in England for Golden Globus. And it put a, it, it, it put a fracture on our relationship. Uh-huh. Because I hadn't, I was writing for him. Yeah. I wasn't thinking about directing. Yeah. And I wrote Cloak and Dagger, and he did that. But when he turned down Screen for Help, they got Michael Winner, and that that turned into a disaster. Mm. And Richard went off and made a film called Link about monkeys in England, and that turned into a disaster. Yeah. And if we had just stayed together, and I had kept writing he would have done Fright Night. Right, right. And so that leads us perfectly into Fright Night, which I do want to talk a lot about today because you're you're still working on Fright Night. The I'm world still working it, on Fright Night. The world of it is, is still <laughs> alive and well. So Fright Night comes up and, and you've already kind of laid the groundwork for about that, but that is your first directing experience, is it not? Yes, That's your it first was. One? But I was, at that point, I was, I was a very, very hot screenwriter in mm-hmm. Hollywood. And I was at the point where I could leverage myself. And that had been my intent from day. That had been my dream. I had no idea that I'd ever accomplish it. Yeah. But that had been that had been my dream. This is a two three hour interview before we're through. But keep keep, keep, <laughs> no. keep going. Move around. No no no. Yeah. So so I'll come back to Fright Night. So just for time's sake, I do want to jump around mainly just because I'm a fan. Uh, but you got to work with Stephen King. Uh, material twice, right? Is it Langoliers and Thinner? I did, did Langoliers and Thinner. So Thinner, it, both of these, I grew up such a fan of anything remotely scary that I, I consumed those both when they came out, even though I think when Thinner came out, I may have been 12 or 13. What year was that? Was that 93? Thinner came out in 95 or 6. Oh, okay. So I was a little older then. Uh, but I remember going to this theater to see Thinner. Um, and I also saw Langoliers, and I remember vividly watching Langoliers with my mom in in our living room when that came out because that was it. That was like a two part event. That was, a, right? that was four hours. Yeah, and I had this is now this I'm prejudiced. Yeah. I wrote it, I adapted it, mm-hmm. and I uh, directed it. But I remember really enjoying Langoliers. It's a ter- absolutely terrific. I think you did a great job with it. And similar to the pressure of doing a sequel to a Hitchcock project, did you feel pressure working and adapting Stephen King material at all? Or what was what was that kind of working? No, for? I did not. Okay. And, and, and when I met Stephen, I liked him. Great. I mean, it was, it was I felt that I had some support out of Stephen. The... Uh, and so I went on to do Thinner, mm-hmm. the, uh, which was another Chansey product. And for 13 years, they haven't been able to get Thinner done. Oh, wow. Wow. You know, I, I didn't realize the, that. Uh, yeah, I, I had read the collection, the short story collection, mm-hmm. and, and Langelier started it. It's a novella, my memory. It's, it's long. Maybe it's no, 35,000, right, yeah. 40,000 words. I don't know. 
The uh, but anyway, it was terrific. <laughs> Stephen wrote a he he the concept was terrific, but the way he executed it. If you look at it, it's real time. Mm -hmm. And what he does is he cuts multiple characters and gives each of them personal problems. So each of them is individualized. So they're, they're interesting for actors. And it's just a great ensemble production right up until the terrible Langoliers. And I know somebody's <laughs> going to remake it. And no, you cannot cut it down to two hours. Yeah. The, yeah. Uh, which is a problem with the stand and a problem with uh, the, 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 the fantasy series. Mm -hmm. Uh, and any, anyway, I you know I was I was very I thought the work that uh, that uh, the lead did in Thinner was brilliant. Everybody, oh, I, I was blessed with great actors in both of those Stephen King pieces. I, I honestly think your casting and everything you've directed, I think, is great casting. Uh, it seems like you've, you've really worked with some wonderful actors on across everything. Now, it, I know how the business works, so that's not always up to you. I've, I've been blessed more often than not, yes. but not always. Oh, of course, not always. It's impossible to <laughs> always do that. But do you think casting, your experience as an actor helped you with casting? I would imagine that you brought a lot of knowledge base to how you cast projects and can spot good actors or not? Do you, would you Thank agree you, with that? And you are one hundred percent correct. Good, good. <laughs> I am. I am sitting here because I started. I was an apprentice at Bus County Playhouse when I in the summer of my sixteenth birthday. Nice, nice. And so, and that's where it started. There was no film school then. Yeah. But you could find acting classes in New York, so I ended up being an actor. I wanted to be a writer. Yeah. You know, I wanted, and it was only later. You know, I think it, certainly by the time of that late 60s, early 70s, uh, Easy Rider was 68. Yeah. So it, it blew open in 1968 yeah. in terms of opportunity for that for that generation, for my generation yeah. to be able to start getting into Hollywood. Before that, it was it was closed. Mm -hmm. And this I could go on and on. Oh, no. I, hey, look, Hollywood history is one of my loves. So yeah, I, I could I could too. I have to be careful because I will do it, too. But. I just mainly wanted to do a tangent to talk about Stephen King projects. Uh, Thinner stuck with me. I got to say, just as as a kid that saw that movie in the theater, that one stuck with me. Like that that hit me in a way that I think you would be appreciative of as the filmmaker behind it, because that def de definitely stuck with me. I just did a signing at Dark Delicacies. Yeah. For you know for the for the new book, mm -hmm. Fright Night Origins. Yeah. That's a plug out there. Absolutely, we'll come back. <laughs> <laughs> and. I had five people tell me how what an experience thinner had been yeah. for them. Yeah. And before that, that film was ninety-five or ninety-six. I swear for it was not a success on its theatrical mm -hmm. release. Mm -hmm. The uh, and I don't think I, anybody had mentioned to it mentioned it to me for for fifteen years. I guess because that's yeah. twenty. 20 some years ago 90, uh, yeah yeah but I thinner isn't thinner's all of a sudden being discovered is what I'm saying yeah yeah there's something going on there well I think I, I wonder how how old were the people because I wonder if they're all part of my generation I'm 40 now so they were younger yeah. at the signing okay they were younger. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. But they're all of a sudden, so they're picking it up on cable or mm -hmm. running it or streaming or whatever. Yeah. But it really feels like that. No, I, I thinner stuck. It really just mentally stayed with me, and I could never quite put my finger on it. But it it, it frightened me in a way that I didn't expect to be. It also, to me, I, I had not. I've read 
Stephen King's work now, but when I saw the movie, I had not uh, in terms of his story thinner. Um, and to me, it's, it's, it's a good adaptation of his work, which doesn't always happen. Like, I feel like the tone of that movie kind of grasps at least what I would imagine. There was a brilliant writer who did the first draft, Michael McDowell. Yeah. I came in and did a polish. I made one terrible mistake under pressure from the studio about over money. I had, I had, I had the, the judge be, a, be turned into a lizard in the bathtub when Billy meets him. And they put such pressure on me to start cutting that I cut the effect. And after that experience, cut the, the, yeah. the, 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 the lizard, lizard suit. Yeah. And I have never forgiven myself for doing that. Oh, and man. I will never, ever cut another in-camera effect on any movie that I do. Yeah, and that, so that's that's eating them. You have a wonderful performance by Robert John Burke. Mm-hmm. The writer who was before me was Michael McDowell, and Michael unfortunately passed. And I did I probably do more Michael McDowell than anybody else. But Michael, I did uh, the amazing stories I did. I think was written by him. Uh, the first tales of the crypt was written by oh, Michael neat. McDowell. Okay. Yeah. He wrote an, an original script. I think it was called Beetlejuice. <laughs> okay, I mean, I mean, he was really talented. Really? Yeah, yeah. And so he had done a first draft that was that was quite quite well put together mm-hmm. on thinner. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's. Great. I got credit on it, but you know. Oh, well, of course, but yeah, that's. I'm glad you're bringing attention. To well, him I came too. in and rewrote characters. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so Fright Night, I'm, I'm, the reason I'm circling back to Fright Night, and it's because you've written a book, Fright Night Origins. Right. Thank you. So tell me about that, because Fright Night, it, it, it's a very important movie for myself, for a lot of people that love the genre. I guess what stuck with you over the years and what brought you to wanting to write a book about this? Well, the fan base, mm-hmm. I think, is most of it. The fan base has never stopped. And it, and it's just been growing all my life. That movie is 1985. Mm-hmm. I wrote that movie right after Cloak and Dagger because the, uh, the Cloak and Dagger was, was supposedly a remake of The Window, which is the Coronel Woolrich juvenile the version, of, uh, version of Rear Window. Yeah. Coronel Woolrich, brilliant writer, the uh, uh, book writer, the... Uh, so I wrote, I, but it didn't work as a boy of Christ. So I wrote Cloak and Dagger. Mm-hmm. But I told Universal, if you really want to do a story about a boy looking out a window and seeing something next door, it should be, he should be a horror fan and he should be a vampire chomping down on a yeah. beautiful young woman. And they immediately threw me out of the office. <laughs> I mean, you know, so I turned around and wrote the imaginary friend Jack Flack in Cloak and Dagger, which had nothing to do with the movie that supposedly it was a remake of. That's funny. Anyway, when I, but I could not get the idea out of my head. The movie never died. Mm-hmm. I mean, it has been a constant, people have constantly asked me about that. They never asked me about Thinner until the last year. That's okay? so interesting. Nobody wow. ever asked me about Fatal Beauty with Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah. I mean, like Zip, nobody ever asked. But they ask about they ask about Fright Night most of all. And then right behind that is Child's Play. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know? But Chucky is, is huge compared to, to, to Fright Night. Oh, of course, of course, yeah. But it... I started running into people with multiple generations, mm-hmm. parents uh, and their kids. They showed it to their kids. Then, God help me, 
It turned into grandparents. It became multi-generational, okay? <laughs> and then I, it just became obvious to me that I, I tried to write the story and I struggled with it. The, uh, I, I, to find it again because Roddy was gone. Yeah, and yeah. I tried to write it without Peter Vincent and it didn't work because the reason I had written it in the first place was I carried the idea around and I kept saying, what would I do? What would I do? And that's when I thought of a horror host, Peter Vincent, because I'd grown up with him. Yeah. And the minute I had that in my mind, I couldn't wait to get home and start to type. Yeah. And I'm, I must have wrote, written that first draft in three to four weeks. Wow. And then I stopped and I thought about it. And I, I love, I'd let it sit, put it, put it in the drawer and let it sit and we'll think about it. And I'm out and I'm sitting around with Mark Lester who was the producer-director of Class of 84. <laughs> and he's talking about the importance of having a female lead in every movie. <laughs> and I thought, uh-oh, I didn't have a girl in the first draft of Fright Night. Yeah. I didn't have Amy in there. And so then I went back and I did a long, you know, I did yeah. a couple of months, you know. <laughs> but anyway, it was huge fun to write that. Oh, I, I can imagine. And I really think one of the reasons Fright Night works, and a lot of, honestly, a lot of your work is you have, you understand the tone of it, because your movies are very different. You, I feel like you nail the tone, you, you, you nail world building each one, but you also have a sense of humor, which I think comes across, and you roll your eyes, but I, I, th I think you do. But I think you have a sense of humor, which I think is so important in horror. And and you get this, you get this family. You get good, great characters. Every everything that I think is great about a lot of work in horror is in Fright Night. I feel like Fright Night just does a great job of Thank kind of you. nailing all these things. Thank you. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it it it's been a it's been a changing experience. Yeah. Anyway, then I I I I came back to it and I said, well, I'll write. What I wanted to do was write what happens the minute that the movie ends. Yeah. When they're all down, what happened? They're all down there in the basement embracing each other and Jerry Dandridge is dead. Well, what happens when the cops arrive? Yeah. So that's where I started to write from. And I, I don't know, I wrote, I don't know, 60, 70,000 words. I, I thought it was pretty good. And I asked a few good friends to read it and they were confused. And then I realized that they had seen and enjoyed but did not really remember in detail the movie. Yeah, yeah. And then I realized that the book was a thing itself. The movie is, is the thing itself. The screenplay is not. The screenplay becomes the movie, but the screenplay is never a, a book is a thing itself. Yeah. So I went back to Fright Night Origins or starting with the very beginning. Nice. And I went back with, with Jack Ulrich, who I've been working with for, I don't know, a dozen years, and I filled in the characters. And I put in scenes that I didn't have time for in the movie. Mm. And it became really terrific. And then I wanted to get it out right away. I didn't want to wait. And if you go with a traditional publisher, you're waiting in a queue, year, year and a half. So I self-published. And this is, we're 10 days in now. And it is, at least to me, a mini phenomenon. Mm -hmm. I mean, we haven't stopped selling the book. And the reader, the reader reaction, which is really the fan base, those who have good memories of, of, of the movie, are happy as clams. 
because they're learning more about the people. And now I'm, I'm, I'm in the book two and three, and I'm going to try to get the book two uh, aftermath and get it so we can come out right after Christmas with the new year. I mean, it's really been terribly encouraging. <laughs> and I was, I, I of course, I, I, we put the press release on a, on a Tuesday, we put it out on a Tuesday afternoon, and I went to bed that night, and I woke up Wednesday, and no one had picked it up. Yeah. None of the yeah. horror sites had picked it up. Yeah. And I thought, oh my goodness, I've made a terrible mistake. I guess, I guess that the fan base isn't as, as, as big as I thought it was, you know? Yeah. And then I think by Wednesday afternoon or Thursday, maybe it was Thursday, all of a sudden it went up on the Bloody Disgusting and Joe Blow. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that started it. Good, good. And then the book started to sell. Good. And so, where's the best place for people to buy it? Well, they can buy it at uh, terrortime.shop, which is my personal website, yeah, yeah. especially if you want it signed. Or you can, if you want it easy, you can go on Amazon. Yeah. And we have a hardcover now. This went up, I think, yesterday. So we, it's on Kindle, on, on hardcover, and on softcover, of course, which is really what's been selling. Oh, good, good. And I'll provide links to all those in my show notes for Thank everybody you. listening. Um, so I want to, because I want to kind of wrap things up here with your thoughts. And I know this is, this is a vague question. All your experience writing movies and directing movies in this genre, is there any thing that stands out to you is like, here's what makes a great horror story work. Oh, boy. Yeah, I know. It's a, it's oh, a big, boy. It's a big every, question. Every, every one of them is difficult. It has changed. You know, it, 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 when I first came to Hollywood, every, every waitress and every, you know, every waiter and waiter waitress wanted to be an actor. Then it, it, that we went through a period where every one of them was carrying a script under their arm, you know. And the, the, the rap on horror is that it's always been the entry-level genre and the mm -hmm. entry-level jobs. And that's where it was, the Roger Corman times, when I was coming up, when uh, Avatar, uh, Cameron was coming up. But now it has become a genre onto itself for established filmmakers. And there are, I mean, it, it Horror as a genre has exploded. You're doing a podcast uh -huh. on it. The it, it has become it has become its own world. It, 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 I mean, serious serious chunks of the studio like Blumhouse, uh -huh. you know, are, are, are mining it. It, uh -huh. it. There, anyway, it has become it's become as it's become as big as the bloody you know Academy of Motion Arts Picture. I mean, I, when I was coming up, all they talked about was what was nominated for an yeah. Academy Award. Yeah. A whole social life and world were built around the Academy. Not true anymore. Yeah. You know, the, uh, the fan base continues to build and the artistic room is there for many voices in horror. And the, the price to get in budgets are sufficiently low that it's also open to people to, to new people break, breaking in hard mm -hmm. I mean because the 
because you see how easy what we're doing is here. Yeah. You can make a film with your iPhone. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, it, it's become it's become open to everybody, which it wasn't. Yeah. My first 40 years were late 30s anyway, were a struggle to get in. There were so many barriers to entry and it doesn't have any, it, it doesn't, I go on. Hollywood was unionized. When I, I came out here under a seven-year contract to Warner Brothers yeah. when I was 19. Yeah. Okay. And it was, the town is so tightly unionized in every craft area. And those jobs were passed down to sons and daughters, you know, and that's the way it was. And every studio was its own family. Mm -hmm. And there was huge competition between the studios. And I came in just in the wreckage of that. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. And and what do you still want to do within the genre? Do you do you want to focus on movies, books, or is it just storytelling to you? Is it just it, here's a great point, story? At this point, it's storytelling, mm -hmm. and I'm probably going through my ninth nervous breakdown. But time has gotten short, mm -hmm. and it's gotten important. Mm -hmm. And I really, right now, the easiest way for me to get my workout is with stories if I can write them, film them, whatever. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I'm not going to go do a year and a half, two years in a, in a big CGI. I'm not, I'm not interested in Marvel. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, good. Uh, well, thank you. I think we can, we can end it right there. Well, and I thank you. Yeah. And I mean, for, 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 for asking and being so great on the other side. And thank you for mentioning Fright Night Origins. But I also want to be very encouraging to every younger person who's out there. It is so much easier now to make a film. I made my first film when I was 18 on short ends and 16 mil at Northwestern University Theater School because they didn't have a film school. You do. You can work, you can make your own films and you can study on your own. And I wish you luck because what we need now is talent and new voices continually. And horror is a genre that will bear a lot of uh, a lot of subtext. Anyway, thank you very much, Michael. Thank you so much. I love it. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this special episode with the interview with Tom Holland. I will provide links in the show notes to his new book, Fright Night Origins, which was also co-written by A. Jack Ulrich. I want to give a big thank you to Tom and his team for wanting to talk to me. That was such a thrill to do, and I'm very excited to release this around Halloween. If you are a fan of scary stories and horror movies, check out our Halloween specials, Part 1 and Part 2, Terrifying Tales. I had a lot of filmmaker friends on sharing their favorite scary stories, and it was a lot of fun. The show will be dark next week, the week after Halloween 2022. I'll be back with a true crime, a very bizarre true crime case the week after that. And if you enjoyed the show, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website, astudyofstrange.com, support us on Patreon, and follow us on Instagram at a study of strange. Thank you, and happy Halloween. <laughs>